0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us on episode number 19 of the Glitch.stream podcast, 19 episodes. Again, I always say this at the beginning of every episode, but I'm still surprising myself that we're still going. So uh, this is this is fantastic. As usual, uh, you can find the uh, link for, um, if you're watching from YouTube, you can find the link for the audio-only version and the podcast. I'm gonna show it right now. I added the Linktree um, URL for you here so that you can pretty much get access to all of the different social networks and everywhere I post, um, as well as the podcast that is being released on all of the major platforms. If you are listening in from uh, a podcast platform, uh, you can also access this link. I'm going to add it to the description of this episode so that you can check out the YouTube video or YouTube version of what you're listening to. I have an exciting announcement that's going to... I'm going to take place probably in the next couple of weeks. So stay on the lookout for it. I'm going to... I thought about ways for you listeners to contribute and be part of this journey of this channel. And I want you to be involved in the decision-making, the ideation, so on and so forth. So stay on the lookout. I'm going to also schedule a giveaway for some of of the interesting books that I like personally. So I'm going to give you free copies of those. I'm going to announce the details about that in future episodes. So stay tuned. Um, Lastly, I... Not lastly, actually, what I want to do now is I want to introduce my guest. I have Marwa Al-Ghali with me. We are going to have a nice conversation about a lot of different stuff related to her background and her experience in tech. Uh, Marwa has studied um, computer science at the American University of Beirut. She did her master's degree over there. And then she worked for nine years at CCT International before moving on to Hedgeguard, where she is now the chief operating officer and I'm not sure, part-time software engineer as well. I think she cannot really let go of the technical work. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about how these two things uh, work together and uh, her experience with that. Marwa, thank you very much for joining me today. Do you have anything you to for add? Thank uh, Do you have anything you'd like to add to your background?
1: No, I think you, you pretty much covered it. Thank you for that. <laughs>
0: Awesome. So Marwa, let's start with the basics, you know, and just let's talk about the beginnings. Why did you choose computer science?
1: It was a very basic reason, I think. Uh, when I when I started the major at the university, you know, I met a lot of people who were the total computer science enthusiasts who had been dreaming of doing this or had been doing this since they were kids. Uh, I had never written a piece of code before I started the first computer science um, course so uh, what i wanted to do was um i was a uh, well i was an a student uh, who liked science uh you know majors or science related topics who needed to get into a major to find a decent job in lebanon so the the options were not you know plentiful uh computer science made sense in that way so that's why i started it it was something related sort of to mathematics which is something i liked i mean mathematics was the other option i was looking at but i decided to go for computer science instead because i didn't want to be just a math teacher uh so yeah that's why i got into it and then um I think just from the first or one or two uh, sessions that I attended of CMPS 200 for all those who <laughs> did computer science at AUB, uh, I think I, I knew that I liked it. It was so something I could definitely go through.
0: It's interesting. There are a few things I want to I wanna dig deeper into because you mentioned that you didn't want to study mathematics or pure math because you didn't want to end up as a teacher. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Why is there an expectation that if you study pure math that you're going to end up as a teacher?
1: I come from a sort of a conservative background here in Lebanon. I'm a female uh living in Lebanon, I didn't really intend on traveling anywhere for work. So at the time, I think still till today, if you want a profitable job and something like uh, any of these scientific courses, as a female, um, it is expected if you enter a pure science uh, trajectory that you're going to go teach. And uh, still conservative families or your parents will tell you, Oh, you become a school teacher. Then you'd have, you know, time to have a family, your, your, uh, your workload would coincide with, you know, the, your children's, um, school work because they run at similar times. You would have the summer off, you know, it's that idea of like, if you do a teaching job, then, um, that would coincide with having a family life. So, I didn't want to do a teaching job and i didn't end up having a family life i wanted to go into the industry instead so yeah i think that made more sense
0: amazing and uh you said you were an a student that's definitely an understatement you were sort of a legend actually at the american university of beirut a lot of people talk about you and your achievements Uh, so that's that's amazing because um you mentioned that you really did not have any you know background in programming at all but still academically you were able to achieve a lot do you think there's a correlation between people who have something or at least let me ask the question differently do you think people who had a background uh, were able to be successful or do you think that's completely irrelevant and unnecessary especially in computer science and why
1: i mean especially i think in computer science you have to have a specific skill set uh regardless of whether you had a background or not or whether you were inclined towards it growing up or even in school it's a very it's a think it's a specific skill set of logical thought and uh sort of a programmatic uh, way of thinking um uh, sort of if you have a tendency to understand algorithmic uh, way of thinking or processing then i think you would do well in computer science regardless of how you started out uh so uh, yeah i don't think your background or your tendencies or what you like would have affected your result in computer science it's just whether you were inclined to understand the way it works
0: how much do you believe the uh knowledge of mathematics and the practicality of it affects your success in computer science uh
1: not necessarily the knowledge of pure mathematics let's say or uh because i also did a math minor so i definitely don't believe that the knowledge of um well let's say algebra or uh um, what was the course calculus Calculus. or anything like that necessarily enters into the under it's more again the uh, the logic required behind those courses it's the ability to think logically to follow a process step by step uh, to understand why you're doing every step and the reason behind it and what is the cause of it. Uh, so I think both of those appear in mathematics and computer science. And I think that's what you would have to focus on in order to be good in both fields.
0: Great, great that you say this, because a lot of students are intimidated a little bit by the fact that for one reason or another, they're not really, they think that they're not really great at math irrespective of that, but then they don't pursue computer science or engineering degrees just because of this exact specific reason. Right. From this, I want to ask you, because you did your master's degree also, why didn't you choose to pursue a career in academia? And why did you choose to go to the industry?
1: I think I can uh, attribute that to a couple of reasons. First, I did start doing a lot of research, of course, during my graduate degree. I worked on publishing a few papers as well. So the work that came from uh, doing research purely for academia, uh, it's just the idea of having to answer questions that nobody really asks, that's just you're asking in order to produce something, uh, another, just to produce another paper or make a small contribution somewhere. I get the the noble purpose behind that, but it just didn't feel like I would be, let's say making as much impact as I, I would have liked to make. Um, and my experience, I would have to say, unfortunately in the American University Um, working with different professors and the trajectory that different professors chose to take, uh, those who chose to focus more on the research uh, uh, aspect of uh, teaching rather than the class aspect, let's say, um, it really diverted from their, let's say, contribution to their students and during classes and so on. So I don't think I wanted to take that path uh, to focus just purely on the research. If I had wanted to enter into academia, it would have been to be as a teacher, but I didn't feel that the general climate uh, actually helped that. So I thought maybe I would feel more of an impact going into the industry. And I think I, I did do that.
0: So let's say if you had a magic wand and you can literally change how change academic, yeah, academic oh. work is, is done.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: how, how, would, how would that perfect world look like from your perspective?
1: um it's kind of sad to say but it all boils down to, to money i think it's just you have to like okay here um wave a wand and give a university as much money as they need from wherever source they come from so that teachers can just focus on teaching without having to apply to grants or whatever so teachers can focus on teaching and on their students and inspire their students that way um and there are research centers dedicated to doing research and not necessarily in universities. I mean, universities can collaborate with the research centers, but not necessarily do the work themselves or ask their students to do it uh, purely to get their graduate degrees. So yeah, just wave uh, wave the wand and uh, <laughs> spread some money around.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So you feel like this is sort of a vicious cycle where academics have to go and raise funds for them to be able to do research, but in order for them to raise the funds they have to produce papers and sometimes these papers are just, you know, empty sort of, or not necessarily, um, you know, making a bigger dent in a certain, in, this, in the certain field, just because they want to rush and go get more funding so that they can right. sustain their labs and their programs. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's clear. And that's, to be honest, yeah, it's quite sad. and. Um, Yeah, I had different ideas about academia also while I was at university and I also felt like this is definitely not something for me and I've always thought that at some point down the line I will raise enough funds so that I can spend time doing the research I enjoy doing and asking the questions that nobody wants to ask without the pressure of having to deal with all of the stuff that comes with it.
1: Exactly, yeah. Still far away from
0: it, but uh, you never know. Let's see.
1: (laughs) Good luck with that.
0: All right. Awesome. Uh, Do you believe that academic performance uh, has any impact or is a predictor for industry success?
1: Actually, I've uh, seen that that's not the case. Um, Like like any field, I think whether you succeed in the industry or not might depend on a lot of factors on sometimes luck on uh, finding the right connections. On, I mean, you might not have done well in university, then you find something you're passionate about in the industry, you find a job that you uh, are dedicated to or someone at your job that inspires you and then you just project a success. So no, I I don't think uh, your performance or even the things you learn at university directly correlate to what you do later on in your career. Uh, They are just tools that are given to you. to find your way around your career maybe or to learn some techniques and then what you should do with them is purely up to you so you you chart your path after that i think
0: so what is the point of having a degree in degree at all actually why do, do you think it helps uh, or it's completely utterly useless because there's a movement that says that yeah. degrees are really useless the, the knowledge that you gain from a degree is not really practical you cannot use it in the industry what are your thoughts on this
1: especially in our industry, I think, there is a, uh, a more progressive movement now towards that our degrees are not really relevant to the industry. And if you take a look at our curriculum, I mean, I, I can only speak for the university system in, in Lebanon, I mean, I'm familiar with the curriculum here, I can't speak for anywhere else. But if you take a look at our curriculum here in university, it doesn't directly correlate to what you, what is needed uh, in the field. Let's say also what is needed purely in Lebanon, I'm not gonna generalize. So, yeah, I am, uh, at, at least for computer science or programming or technology in general, there isn't that much of a correlation. Um, a degree, again, in Lebanon is purely a competitive edge. Uh, someone with a degree would probably more likely be higher than someone without a degree even if that someone is way more qualified. So yeah, it is unfortunately just a competitive edge that you get, you put on your resume so that um, the HR would filter you out better than someone else.
0: Interesting. Uh, it's quite a quite an expensive competitive edge though. Yeah, uh, definitely. The
1: more expensive, the, the higher you rank, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: That's, uh, yeah, I understand. Um, do you feel like having a good grip on the fundamentals has any impact on you as a software engineer. So let's say you have uh, a good understanding of algorithms, data structures, how database relational databases work, um, language, language theory, all of that stuff. Do you think it had any impact on your performance of, as a software engineer?
1: I think it makes it easier. I think it makes it easier for you to onboard on whatever uh, technology stack that you're required to work on at your job. I think it it makes it easier to um, identify problems and find solutions to them. Uh, Again, they don't necessarily map directly to what you're going to be doing. You're not going to find the exact same, you know, not the same language or not the same, you know, part of code that you've seen somewhere before in university. But your understanding of them or your ability to uh, logically analyze them, uh, I think it would definitely help. Let's diverge a little
0: bit and talk about you and software engineering. What excites you about this field?
1: Um, I, I don't know if I'm like in a, in a, a select few group and in, in those who are technology uh, interested, but I'm not like a, a fast adopter of technology. I, uh, I'm, I don't get really excited about new things in the field or anything like that. My interest? Uh, stems from again just the the logic that comes behind you know having a problem and then you solve it by automation. So, uh, in a lot of the things that I've done in my jobs, the two jobs that I've had, um, a lot of the work that I've done was purely like support work, where I go and dig into code that someone else has written and try to find a, a problem or have uh, have to add something into it or discover a bug in it. And I, I, that's the part I love the most. It's trying to follow someone else's logic, I guess, um, and try to a- adapt, uh, adapt it or change it or adjust it uh, or make it better. And oftentimes, I find that I, I learn by that. I learn by watching how someone else might have thought about a problem or how they addressed it, how I might have addressed it differently uh, to compare the two. Uh, that's the part that I enjoy the most out of it, I think.
0: I have spent 15 years in the industry uh, so far, and I've never, ever heard a person say what you just said. So <laughs> I want to dig deeper and I want to ask you why.
1: Um, I, I don't know. I've always had a fear of starting off a piece of code on a completely fresh white page. Um, even if I was doing something I'm completely familiar with, I would just copy code from somewhere else and just start completely changing it just so I don't start off from a fresh page because uh, I don't know what kind of fear that is. What do you want to call that phobia? But um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. You you take something and you, you try to shift it around to make it something else. And I find that intriguing. I, I find that interesting rather than, you know, you can always... I mean, in code especially, you can just type whatever you want to do, uh, you want, and make it do something. But I find it interesting that you have something that maybe does uh, a certain thing already, and then you change it to make it do something else. And I find that very interesting. So, yeah,
0: I think I think you are the dream, like like or or this this perfect (laughs) this profile is the dream for a lot of um, you know companies who maintain like really large software legacy they cannot yeah. really yeah they're not necessarily legacy it's like it could be software that's currently heavily used but they just cannot rewrite it every day they don't want everyone on the team to be super ambitious about every single piece of tech they just right. want to keep maintaining this code code base which is like very relevant highly sophisticated, extremely important, and it yields probably millions of dollars for the business. And it's very important to maintain it, but it's, it's very rare to find profiles like you who are capable and willing to, to, to keep on maintaining these large code bases. So is this for you, does it come out of comfort or does it come out of this is something you find enjoyable or this is something that drives you further or this is something that you know, keeps you curious and wondering?
1: Um, I wonder if, uh, if the first uh, led to the second. So if it was me trying to stay in my comfort zone that actually led me to start enjoying that. Um, it's possible that I'm, I'm, I'm like afraid of trying something new or uh, going into something I'm not familiar with, discovering that I'm not that good at it or that I don't understand it or that I might require help with it. So that uh, so I stick in my comfort zone and then I find, okay, I, I like doing this. I enjoy it and I'm good at it. So uh, yeah, I think they complement each other. And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm able to do it in a place where they actually need something like that, so yeah.
0: Are you regretful of this or do you feel like this has actually made your career the success that it is or contributed to your success right now?
1: Both, it depends what time of day you ask me or what's happening with me. Um, yeah, sometimes I look back and say, oh, what if I tried something else? Would I be in a different place in my career now? Would I, uh, I've advanced more or done something more. Uh, and other times I, especially if I just, you know, done something good or I solved a problem or I contributed in some way, then I like, no, this is good. I'm doing something good. So yeah, it depends on time of day, I guess.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask you now about why did you spend nine years in the same place Um, because also this is very different than what all of the different and again i don't want to generalize but like all of the popularized statistics say for example that developers spend maybe roughly a couple of years in one place before they jump to another specifically you know in their like in their 20s um they really don't like to settle in they want to explore different territories different fields so on and so forth i personally also sort of advise that just because It depends on the level of ambition of a certain person, how far they want to go, how much they want to explore. You spent nine years in the same company, uh, but in different roles. You started as a junior developer, then you were a senior, then you were a lead, and then you ended up as a project manager. Um, How did that serve your career? And do you think that was worthwhile? Would you do it differently if you had the chance? What's your perspective on this?
1: also a tricky question and depends on when you ask it. Um, It goes back to all of the factors that I mentioned. Um, For those who are not familiar with, I mean, CCT International was like uh, a place where a lot of the AUB graduates from computer science went to work. So we were like just an extension of the university uh, sitting in a company. It was a very comfortable environment to be in. Um, I learned a lot for sure in the several roles that I was in. And then I ended up working on a project that I basically started from scratch, uh, and I ended up working on it for like six years. So again, the, the whole um, adoption of comfort, and it sort of became like my baby, and I had a hard time giving up on it. So uh, you start off on a project like that, and then you don't want to let it go. Um, it maybe hinders your career it maybe blocks you a little bit makes you make some decisions that you might regret later on um but i learned a lot uh because i did all of those roles because i was allowed to do all of those different roles even working on one project i definitely learned a lot would i have left earlier possibly Uh, i maybe should have left earlier but uh i don't regret any of the things i learned for sure
0: don't you think there is um... There are many learning benefits to spending six years with the same code base, because again, the code base is always evolving, right? You're adding more stuff to it. it.'s it's a It's an evolutionary sort of uh, setup. it's changing. Um, and then the code base, when you're working on a greenfield project, it's relatively simple. But then when you have end users using it, it's much more complex. Do you think this is uh, this is of added value? Any lessons you, you, can, you you've taken from that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially that um, when I started off on, on a project from scratch and you see all of the layers that it can involve through um, and you take it from something that you, I mean, you just started to a, a, a product that you actually have to convince people to start using, that you have to implement, that you have to support. Um, and I was doing multiple roles on that. So for sure, if you're going through a, a full product trajectory with a certain project or a certain product for, the, for clients, then uh, yeah, you're you're gonna learn a lot. So it all depends on what kind of roles you're taking, what kind of projects you're working on. Even if you're in one company, you could be evolving through multiple layers or you could be working for like two years on one single thing and that could be very blocking for you. So uh, that definitely contributed to the fact that I stayed that long. It's because I was, in a way, advancing through uh, through the company, through the multiple roles, even through the multiple projects that I worked on. Um, and that is that is profitable to anybody for sure.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the technology stack you used for that for that project, if you're at liberty to say. Um, and what about the scale of the of the of the product? It was for internal purposes, I'm assuming. Uh, how many users? can you tell us a little bit more on the technicals of that?
1: Sure, so uh, mostly I worked on like two products within CCT, Uh, one was a document management system and the other was a fleet management system. Uh, The tech stack was purely like uh, .NET, uh, SQL server, you know, the regular Microsoft stack. the project that I started was the fleet management system, and it involved collaboration with like hardware uh, providers and suppliers. And I had a, a team that was, you know, like e- electrical engineers that were dedicated for that. So that collaboration was also very uh, helpful. It was a whole learning uh, scale all throughout. Um, and then we evolved into like trying to make it IoT or whatever. So that's another learning curve. Uh, but yeah, the technology stack, I've basically stuck through all throughout. I've worked mostly only on Microsoft stack, but uh, the different aspects of the projects sure, surely differ.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about the fleet management system? Like, um, why was there a decision to build something like this in-house while there are obviously other you know platforms readily available? What would drive a company to build something like this and invest in it?
1: So CCT International is basically the software arm of CCC, the contracting company, obviously a contracting company of that size, which has you know a lot of large projects in the Gulf and so on. Um, so they have a large fleet of equipment for construction and uh, a fleet monitoring system obviously is helpful to monitor location, utilization, uh, activity of the equipment. Uh, it was thought Because, I mean, because CCC owned CCT and had the software arm, I mean, they developed their own document management system in-house, even though obviously there's a lot in the market and they want to develop the fleet management system as well. Uh, And it could be something that could be then uh, sold to other clients potentially. Uh, So uh, it was an investment in-house because it was, um, it was thought to be a worthy investment considering the size of the fleet that CCC owned at the time and considering the specific needs that they had regarding monitoring their equipment, especially heavy equipment and the type of uh, things they wanted to monitor, the products available uh, in the market for that purpose were pretty expensive. So it was thought that a development in-house would be more profitable, uh, more economical, and definitely you would be able to customize it at well.
0: Interesting that they think that uh, in-house uh, development is is more economical. How many people were on that on that project? Like, how many engineers would be working on something like this?
1: Uh, it fluctuated over time, depending on you know um, there was the trajectory of the project and how interesting it was to the management. So, at one point, at the highest point, I think we were like uh, five engineers um, working on it, and at the lowest point, it was just me and an electrical engineer. So it fluctuated. <laughs>
0: Interesting. And, and was the system eventually deployed and utilized or it came to a halt?
1: Um, at the last, when I left, it was being utilized in a small scale. I'm, I'm not sure how it has evolved since then.
0: Okay, so it was more of a, yeah, it was, so for the for the for for these years it was more of an experiment for this company with a tendency to spin it off potentially down the line right. if, if you were able to be successful with it. That's right. that's interesting, and I, I like seeing companies that actually try these experiments and do these types of investments, because you never know what, uh, you know, especially in these right. specific so, niche industries, because you right. never know what you can come up with. Uh, exactly. I mean, I, I worked in the maritime industry for about three years, and I can... I cannot count the number of ideas we've had for problems that could be solved with technology, right? That there isn't a readily available solution already on the market. And I know that venture capitalist funds drool, drool on industry experts, you know, who come up with stuff like this and solutions to problems. So, okay, cool, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's nice to hear. Um, let's move on a little bit and talk about, have you ever considered traveling and working outside of Lebanon?
1: It remains like a pipe dream where you think, oh, I I, I think I can do it. I mean, why can't I do it? I applied to Google a couple of times, you know, went through the interview process there thinking like, why don't I travel and work abroad? Um, But yeah, again, the fear, the comfort zone, maybe um, wanting to be remain close to my family uh, actually stopped me from doing all of that. But yeah, it remains a pipe dream, I guess.
0: I understand the sentiment. I mean, when, whenever you, you go abroad, a lot of people have dreams that they want to leave. And I can understand it. Uh, You can, you can have fulfilled a lot of your potential outside, but you're also letting go of a lot of very important things in life that you only recognize once you fulfill the, you know, sustenance needs, let's put it that way. what's the most challenging aspect of your current role? So let's move on to Hedgeguard a little bit and talk about your switch from uh, building software for a construction company to financial systems and trading and this entire world, right? So tell us us a little bit more about Hedgeguard first, what's the industry they're in, and then tell us a little bit more about your current role there.
1: Okay, so um, Hedgeguard Financial Software as a company is based in Paris, Uh, Hedgeguard S-A-L, which is the uh, Beirut branch, let's say, of the company, It's currently where the majority of the employees are. Uh, The company serves, well, started off serving a portfolio management system to the traditional market. It has recently tried to expand into the crypto space. So uh, working on uh, providing a crypto-based portfolio management system and reporting system. Um, so, when I started off and still till now, I am uh, a working the software developer, main software developer on the traditional portfolio, portfolio management system. Um, and about a year, a year and a half ago, uh, I was asked to take over as director of operations for the Beirut branch, uh, aspiring COO, if we want to call that title. And uh, to handle uh, to handle like all types of organization and logistics for the team in Beirut. Um, yeah, that's definitely been a challenge. I mean, it started off as okay. I th- we think you have the the skills needed for organization, uh, project management. Uh, you know, uh, that sort of skill set. I think maybe is required for someone who's really uh, directing operations. Let's say. Uh, I did not expect that when I was first hired, I didn't, uh, ask for it for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge.
0: How did you handle the transition from building code, writing software to dealing with operational, uh, challenges?
1: I think I tried to address it as if I was addressing a piece of code, <laughs> um, Uh, basically, I mean, honestly, the the thing they told me, uh, what top management said when they asked me to do this role is that we think you have what it takes to be organized in order to do this role. I mean, you're organized in your code, so it should be like an organizational task. And I think that's how I started off addressing it, like, okay, I'm going to write down a manual of how things should be done. Um, And these are the (laughs) organizational tasks that should be done, or this is how I'm going to split up The team and organize the communications. It's just like um, building a piece of code, actually, and uh, determining how things communicate from one class to another. Let's say (laughs) Um, uh, I don't know if it's right because people are not exactly like pieces of code. They don't uh, they don't work as well like that. So yeah, that's been the challenge for me. I think it's just transitioning from okay, these are. These are people who have their ideas and their own thoughts and their own uh, say in the matter and it doesn't get as organized as you would like it just like that
0: true i was going to ask like uh, how how was your experience with treating people as if they are like sort of i i don't want to say it in this way but like <laughs> yeah, exactly. people are not necessarily machines and they don't really follow right. instructions just because they've the instructions have been drafted in a way so right. yeah that th- i understand that challenge fully and i've i've personally yeah. made a mistake uh, early on in my career also when i tried to transition to management i was like yeah now people should do exactly what i say because i know how things should be done <laughs> right, <laughs> right and right. and why aren't they following my instructions they shouldn't exactly. be following my instructions <laughs> because, Exactly. yeah so i understand do you, do you what are you go undergoing any sort of training that will help you in this in this area or are you more learning as you go are there any specific resources that you tap into to gain more insights of how you should approach these things
1: um, I was actually assisted uh, when I first started off with, I'm um, going to name it, I guess, Endeavor Lebanon, which is sort of an organization that reaches out to uh, startups and small companies in uh, Lebanon to help them out with their needs. Uh, so they hooked me up with a few like uh, counseling members or workshops to try to onboard onto this sort of organizational role. And it's helped a bit uh for the most part it's um counsel and advice from my top management and learning on the go the team has been um, mostly pretty supportive um they listen to i mean they listen and support me what i say even when i'm very being very dictatorship (laughs) so um but yeah it's definitely a learning curve to try to adapt to what you think should be done or how you think things should be done versus you know uh how people will embrace it and actually get it done
0: amazing so how would you approach it how would you approach managing people today versus how you started out so what changed in your management style do you have any pointers tips and tricks that we can maybe learn from
1: um listen I think listening a lot more than when I first started out. Um, Listening to the team's needs first uh, and trying to address that. um, I guess not being very... uh, I like to do things very expeditiously. So like, okay, we put this down, I put down the steps, everything can be done, like you can get this done in one week. Just the same way I write code, you know? Uh, and yeah, it does, it doesn't work that way. So it's just listening and taking the time to help people to adapt. Uh, and the fact that the organizational process, even in project management, uh, on any type of project, even on a, a code project, it's just uh, a learning process process and it's a learning curve and it's going to adapt along the way. It's not just you set it off at the start and this is how it's going to work at the end. You're going to have to be flexible enough to change it along the way. Otherwise, it's not going to work.
0: Amazing. So Marwa, how many teams do you currently manage um, at your organization?
1: We're we're not a very large organization. I mean, uh, speaking strictly for the Beirut office, we're around uh, 22 people here right now. And those are like what I'm directly uh, responsible for. Uh, There's probably like uh, 15 or 16 other members uh, in France and the US. Um, So yeah, I'm directly responsible right now for the 22 people in Beirut who are working on like both activities at Hedgeguard, the traditional market and the crypto markets uh, and both products that are dedicated to that.
0: So the Beirut, Beirut office is, has been opened as a mechanism to outsource a lot of the development work, probably as, as a maybe cost reduction mechanism or maybe just to tap into talent that you know doesn't really exist in the original market. Do you think the strategy works? Is it good? Is it efficient? What's your perspective on that?
1: So uh, the scale of the team in Beirut involves software developers, uh, product management, financial officers, uh, and even HR. So we've had we, we cover the whole spectrum of the operations needed, uh, all of them in Beirut. It definitely came from idea of you know the founder of the company is Lebanese, so he wanted to encourage Lebanese talent and you know provide a job opportunities to them here, and as well from a cost effectiveness uh, point of view. Um, I mean, we both know how Lebanese talent works. They're just looking for an uh, an output somewhere to, in order to, to work. So it's definitely beneficial to work there. Uh, obviously, we're familiar with all of the challenges that come from working out of Beirut. So uh, that becomes a sort of a blocking point. But it remains um, extremely effective and um, extremely, I mean, also cost effective that you're operating a team out of beirut and it's actually like a good talking point when you're advertising to clients or you know or even counterparties like um i'm I'm working with um, a team out of beirut sometimes it's concerning for them and sometimes it's like (laughs) oh interesting
0: and do you think it's a good strategic move so beyond the sentimental value of you know i'm lebanese i'm outside i want to give back a little bit to the country do you think as a strategic decision do you ad- do you think companies should pursue something like this or do you think they should have their development team or whatever operation they have as close as possible to headquarters?
1: I think it's helpful to have it diversified, not necessarily close to headquarters. I think it's helpful to have it in different places uh, spread out across the world. Uh, to have it in Beirut, I mean, it depends. If you have the logistics needed to support operating out of Beirut, you know... Um, whether it's funding or contacts or anything like that, to just make sure that your team is supported here in Beirut, given all of the challenges available, then it's definitely something to encourage. Um, the, the, the people working out of Beirut have a lot to offer, obviously. So as long as you're uh, able to understand and you know comprehend all of the challenges that come with working out of here, that your clients are able to understand all of the challenges uh, as well, uh yeah it's definitely something to encourage
0: so what about the you mentioned the diversification of operations is good spreading it across multiple geographical regions is also good why why is that the case
1: um it helps you to cover uh different client operations helps you to cover different client time zones um and it's it's a good cultural diversity uh perspective, I think. So um, even the team in France that we have currently operating, they come from different countries. So it's just a, a good cultural diversity environment to be in. Uh, and it gives different perspectives. I've, I've noticed that, you know, it, it just gives them different perspectives and people working in the same area with the same background. Uh, they approach things differently.
0: How, how does that help uh, build better products?
1: Um, as with any product or any project that you work on, you have different points of view and you notice certain gaps that other people might not. So uh, it just, it's just, uh, with any team, you'd want it to be as diversified as possible just to cover all of your basis points, I think. Don't you
0: think homogene- homogeneity is more efficient, let's say, in making decisions faster, moving faster, while diversity will create more discussion points, more, you know, so, so what should companies optimize for?
1: Um, it's a balance. I mean, like anything, it's a balancing act homogeneity. Yes. it will make everything go faster, uh, but not necessarily better. I mean, especially if like, let's say your management tier is homogeneous or all coming from the same background and then your, your employees are completely diversified, then you're just, you know, you're, you're working on two different uh, platforms. Uh, so it it just helps to have diversity all throughout it. Just, yes, it raises a conversation uh we've had that several times um it just makes a whole different discussion but i think the discussion is helpful it's gonna take more time uh but it's worth it
0: i uh, i always hate to ask this question but i'm also curious about it um so in lebanon we have modernized quite a lot we are quite avant-garde in a lot of ways of thinking but also there are a lot of traditional more conservative environments that are still taking place, practices, so on and so forth. Do you feel like your gender has affected you as a, uh, you know, in your leadership position? Has it posed any challenges for you in that environment? How was your experience?
1: I don't think it directly stems from working out of Lebanon or the conservative environment that we live in. Uh, From what I've noticed, it might stem from anywhere. or from you know any background that you encounter, I think we, at least as far as my experience goes, again I'm not going to generalize, but I think we we still have uh, ways to go to fully uh, just completely disregard the gender when it comes to someone in a managerial position or in a C-suite position. Let's say, um, I've encountered several instances where. Uh, let's say, I would be questioned on certain decisions or the way I take certain decisions, especially in the way I told you I execute my decisions. Um, And uh, I'd be left wondering if I would have received the same reaction or the same feedback had I been a male manager, let's say. So I think we we still have a ways to go in that regard. And I I think that's regardless of where your environment is or if you're in a conservative environment or not.
0: So, how would you approach if, for example, your authority is challenged, or how how would you deal with something like that?
1: Again, that's been a learning curve. I uh, I've, I've faced that throughout both my jobs, I think, and I I haven't always taken it well. I've taken it personally. I have taken it um, as an offense. Um, I, I think I'm learning to to brush it off and try to revert to logic. Uh, to make people see beyond the gender, I think, and go back to the idea behind it. I might be proven wrong. Uh, I have to also learn to, to accept when I'm wrong. But yeah, I think you have to learn that um, and make people understand as well that it's regardless of my gender, I have certain ideas or certain points of logic and uh, you're welcome to challenge them, but challenge them based on the points themselves and not because they're coming from me.
0: Amazing. Marwa, um, I'm always inspired by you, by your humility, because I know for a fact, like how much you've achieved and how far you've gone, even though you don't necessarily like to talk or brag a little bit about them. uh, But I I know more uh, about what you haven't really shared yet. Um, Do you have any advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with, if you were, for example, to distill your entire experience into a set of tips or um, advice for the aspiring software engineers or maybe even future leaders, what would you leave them with?
1: Wow. Uh, To put in a a few words advice, um, that's a difficult ask. Um, Let's see. Um, Always focus on what you want and believe in your ability to do what you want. Um, And approach it with humility I think I think it's helped a bit uh but with confidence as well um and just my idea is always rely on logic regardless of anything um let like go of your emotions and rely on logic
0: interesting thank you very much Marwa for this uh, lovely chat uh, I always like uh, chatting with you and uh thank you for taking the time
1: thank you so much Basim it's been a pleasure